I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saded 13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, muckraking journalist Ken Silverstein returns to discuss a number of different topics. For those that are unfamiliar, Ken is a journalist who covers the seedy, sleazy side of D.C. politics, what he calls Washington Babylon. First and foremost, we'll be discussing Israel's bombing of Gaza, which has cost so many thousands of Palestinian civilian lives. Ken has pretty strong opinions on it. You'll hear about that in the conversation to follow. We'll also discuss the role Ken played in publicizing and popularizing the infamous photos of the late Henry Kissinger seemingly picking his nose and eating his own boogers. Ooh, I know, gross. Also, we'll revisit Ken's collaborator and friend, the late Alexander Coburn's troubles with the Israel lobby. And finally, we'll go over Ken's latest story in The New Republic about Senator Bob Menendez seemingly living the high life off campaign donation money because, well, campaign finance law in this country is, to put it mildly, lacking. All that and much more with Ken Silverstein. Let's get right to it. Welcome back to Parallax News Guest, and I'm very happy to be speaking with, uh, he's been on the show a number of times now, Ken Silverstein, the journalist behind uh, Washington Babylon. He was also uh, one of the founders of Counterpunch, 
and he writes now, I think, for the New Republic, right, Ken? Or I, I mean, I write for a bunch of, uh, I shouldn't say a bunch, but a number of publications. But most recently, I've had a few pieces in New Republic write for other places, too. I guess where I wanted to start out uh, was, well, first off, how are you doing? Because it's been uh, a crazy few months and a difficult few months for a lot of us. It's been a very difficult few months. I mean, you know, I'm one of these people who thinks like things have never been worse. And maybe uh, I'm a little too cynical or pessimistic, but this is a rough moment. The big thing I, I expect you're referring to is the Israeli situation and the, I'm not going to say a war against Hamas because it's not a war. It's just a slaughter of Palestinians. Yeah, it's not against Hamas. It's against Palestinians. And it's not a war. It's a massacre because the Israelis have obviously so much more firepower. And I don't know, it drives me crazy, like, and what's even almost more shocking in some ways than than the war, or not more shocking, but I've been surprised at the depths to which Congress has stooped in terms of just absolutely endorsing this, these war crimes, this attempted genocide. There's no question about that in my mind. And you know, I, I have to say that, that means a lot coming from you because... You have seen everything when it comes to the Congress critters and how dishonest they can be. And even you're surprised. I am. I mean, I, I guess the the crackdown on speech and trying to, you know, equate opposition to what Israel is doing with anti-Semitism, it's offensive. And, you know, it is true for me. I mean, it's been years when I was, you know, I was... I'm Jewish, obviously, Silverstein, pretty obvious. And I was bar mitzvahed when I was 13 because my parents said, you know, go to Sunday school or or get bar mitzvahed. And bar mitzvah was faster. It was less time doing it. I was so stoned most of the time at that point that the rabbi almost canceled my bar mitzvah. Nonetheless, I mean, I'm so I'm not a religious Jew, but I do, you know, I take a lot of pride in in Ju not Judaism, but the Jewish people. <clears throat> and so despite the fact that I really not in any way, I'm just not, I mean, I'm agnostic. I wouldn't even say I'm an atheist. I just say I'm agnostic, leaning towards atheist. But <clears throat> um, I, I'm, you know, it's not the religious thing, but I do feel, this makes me feel worse. Not that I would feel great about genocide being committed anywhere in the world but this is worse for me and I, I think because i just you know i it's not that i feel responsible exactly but it's just closer and so watching this happen you know and and it, it to me it's i i guess it's sort of like an abused child who grows up to be an abuser and you know it's real like <laughs> Is, it, Jews got a, a state and they've become the abuser in a really grotesque way. And the idea that, you know, Jewish people who were victims of genocide, and, you know, six million Jews, like, we're not talking ancient history. This is, you know, the World War II ended in 1945 that 
not terribly long and much afterwards in the overall scheme of history anyway, you know, you've got Israel committing this, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it, I don't want to say the same crimes because of course, you know, any, but anytime you, you make a comparison to the Nazis, people are like, oh my God, that's completely over the top. You, you're a self-hating Jew or whatever. And, you know, it, it's not a question. I mean, the, you know, sure, you can say, okay, well, Israel hasn't like built Auschwitzes to exterminate. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's by any definition of genocide, this is what's taking place. It's what's, it's an attempt at, I don't even, it, I mean, it's an attempt to destroy the culture, the people, the history of Palestinians. That's genocide. So, I mean, I will show you, you know, like if you can see that tattoo. Yeah, I can see it. I don't, my listeners probably won't, but. Right. No, no, no. But I'm just like, that's the, that's May 27, 1942. That's the day that Reinhard Heydrich, the intellectual author of The Final Solution, was assassinated in Prague. And the initials of the two, a Czech and a Slavic uh, partisan who, who killed him in Prague. I mean, I consider that a great date in human history. I'm not a self-hating Jew. It's offensive. It's it's always offensive when people raise that, unless you actually, I mean, there is such a thing. There is, you know, there are self-hating members of every demographic. Fine. But, you know, to call me a self-hating Jew, I, you know, my, a lot of my family was killed before they got out of Europe. And so, fuck you. I don't want to hear it. That's disgusting and offensive. You don't know anything about me. And to say on the basis of my opposition to Israel committing war crimes that I'm a self-hating Jew is just, I mean, it just really literally makes me want to punch someone. I got to be honest, in the in the opening weeks of this, I think I was being very, not politically, but like conservative in how I would talk about this. So I I, <laughs> I kept using the term war crimes. But, you know, the more I've talked to different genocide studies scholars like Omer mm -hmm. Bartov and um, I just got in touch with Raz Segal, I mean, it, it not only that, but you also have Netanyahu saying things openly like, oh, Amalek, you know, making these biblical references yeah. that are very, very clearly calling for wiping out Palestinians. Now I'm at the point where I'm very nervous about what's happening, and I'm I'm amazed that there are still people that don't see this as, you know, I mean, at the very least, an attempted ethnic cleansing, because, yes, I mean, there are voices in Israel that are pretty openly saying that. And I mean, officials that are openly saying that. Exactly. That's the one of the things that's so absolutely infuriating and maddening about this is that even as we're watching scenes that are clearly war crimes. Yeah, like ethnic cleansing, war crimes, genocide. I mean, I like you at the beginning, I, I'm reluctant to use the Nazi comparison because precisely because it's like it's it can be seen as inflammatory, but it's now unavoidable. But you've got these images that we're seeing that leave no doubt that at minimum put aside genocide or, you know, these are clearly war crimes. There's no getting around it. These are, you know, there are huge numbers of people being killed. You know, the majority 
women and children, you know, clearly non-combatants, almost all of the of the dead and wounded. It's taking place, it's unfolding before our eyes. And yes, exactly as you said, you have Netanyahu, who is as deranged as some of the worst of the Nazi leaders. I mean, he is, they used to call, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but Hitler was reportedly called a carpet eater because he would get so upset that he would throw himself on the ground and chew the carpet. I mean, Netanyahu's batshit crazy, like in that same way. Did you happen to see the comments he made about uh, Hitler where he said, oh, Hitler wasn't the real puppet master of the Holocaust. It was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. And I mean, the, the Grand Mufti was anti-Semitic, but I, you know, the idea that the Grand Mufti was the architect of the Holocaust is, I mean, it's it's a conspiracy theory. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's like the protocol of the elders of Zion or something, you know, it's like, no, he'll say anything. These, you know, the Israelis will say anything. They'll lie about anything. It doesn't matter to them anyway. I mean, but that, yeah, I mean, the Israelis are openly saying what they're going to do. And then you have Kamala or Biden or some other flunky, you know, John Kirby. Yes, whatever. Somebody will go on John Kirby. My God. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll just. I mean, the, the audio doesn't match the video. The video is very clear. The audio just it, it it's as if I was with my son watching a football game on the weekend. And I actually we were talking about this and it, I don't even remember who was playing, but somebody some team was pummeling another team. Let's just say the, you know, Lions were pummeling the Dolphins. That was not the game, but, you know, and it's as if the announcers were talking about, you know, the lose, the team that was getting trounced looking like a Super Bowl contender. It's you'd go, what, what, what the fuck is, are they talking about? And that's the way I feel watching, you know, what's happening. And then the U S and Israeli, I mean, the Israeli officials are more honest about it actually, because they do just like, yeah, we're going to just kill them all. And then you have the U S government officials just like, saying things that are flagrantly lies and preposterous. It, so you you really feel like you're losing your mind. So yeah, it's been a bad time in short. It's or not so short. It's been a bad time. Yeah. Well, even even, you know, the things that get downplayed like that intelligence ministry concept paper. I don't know if you saw that, but uh, it rings a bell, but I can't remember what it came from Netanyahu's um, the intelligence <laughs> ministry in Israel, and it was proposing the transfer of Gazans to the Sinai yeah. during, during this whole thing. And I, right. I mean, I guess uh, Netanyahu, his office has said, oh, it's hypothetical and whatnot. But then you, you have reports of Netanyahu lobbying EU governments to pressure Egypt to take in refugees. I mean, it it seems like it's very obvious what's happening right now. It's very, very painfully obvious what's happening right now. It's just incredible. I mean, John, you mentioned Kirby, who is like, that smirk, there's nothing I would love to do more than <clears throat> get that smirk off of his face. Um, but, I mean, it was just, a, I don't know, like less than a week ago where he, you know, at a press conference, you find a country that's doing more than the U.S. to minimize civilian casualties. You won't do it. They're like, what are you talking about? How can you, like, I mean, you would think there would be some, you know, that he would have enough shame I mean, I know his job is to lie, but nonetheless, you'd think like self-respect requires saying, hey, I can't say that. I mean, you know, it's like we're sending the weapons. We're, we've green-lighted everything. They, the Israelis know that they can get away with anything. 
because the U.S. government from Biden to the Republican opposition to Congress, the entire political establishment has made very clear as they watch these crimes unfold and defend them and say, we're going, you know, Israel's our chief ally and criminalize attempts for people to even say what, you know, oppose this. They know that that is why they they must be sitting there laughing their asses off about, oh, yeah, like, sure, international pressure. What a joke, because they know the U.S. will veto any actual attempt to restrain them. It's as they already like, have, <laughs> as they already have. I mean, daily, daily. It's sickening. It's just disgusting. You've been around the block uh, when it comes to reporting on the Congress critters and every other, you know, disreputable character in D.C. So I'm curious, in your years covering, you know, the sort of uh, shady, seedy world of D.C. politics, why is there this relationship uh, between the U.S. and Israel? Because I, there's multiple explanations are usually given. People will say, oh, well, the Israel lobby. Other people will say Israel's the unsinkable aircraft carrier in the Middle East, so it's it's about U.S. imperialism. What do you see as being behind, you know, uh, the U.S.'s at times slavish devotion uh, to Israel? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's often answered, I think, in an overly simplistic way. And I, I, I think the idea that, you know, the U.S. is like under the thumb of Israel is really stupid. Because I think it's really the other way around, even though it may not look like that. The U.S., like, sure, the U.S. is saying we want to restrain Israel, and, and then it doesn't. And so people are like, oh, see, they can't say no to Israel. But no, it's not quite so simple in my view. I think it's more that the U.S. realizes it, it has to make statements suggesting that they want to restrain the Israelis, but they actually don't. You know, the government does not give a shit. That's obvious. And, you know, look, the, the U.S. is still, I mean, you know, all sorts of problems with the country, the economy, you know, military challenges, but still, by far and away, the most dominant power on the planet at the moment. Israel is not controlling the U.S., I think the U.S. sees Israel as, I mean, there are a number of things, but Israel is a key ally in the Middle East, the key ally in the Middle East, which, of course, traditionally, I mean, it's changing a little bit, but, you know, the most important region because of energy. So it was the best friend in that part of the world, you know, where a lot of the oil comes from. So that was important. And you could say, sure, the Saudis also, one of the reasons we've had a close relationship with the Saudis is because the Saudis were a close partner too, and pretty much, you know, generally willing to do what we wanted. But we have more control over Israel. We could stop the war now, this minute. They just don't want to. It's not that we we can't because Israel won't listen to us. We have the leverage. They don't. If if we just said every all weapons are shut off. The war's over fast. There's nothing, you know, they 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 need those weapons. So don't tell me Israel is telling us what to do. So you've got that, the geopolitical, military, strategic relationship. And the Saudis have, and other, you know, the U.S. has enlisted the help of a lot of Middle Eastern countries. 
but they don't, you know, those countries aren't always willing to do what we want. They're less manageable because they, you know, for obvious reasons, their populations are much, much more hostile to the U.S. than the Israeli population. So that limits, that puts some restraints, even though, you know, Saudi Arabia is obviously not a democracy, but it's still, you have to be aware of your, you know, popular opinion. And um, and then there's the APAC and the, the Israeli lobby, which includes, of course, I mean, the central component of that is an insane amount of money um, that's donated by pro-Israeli groups. That That's huge. I, I do think that, um, that uh, it's... <sighs> At this point, it's, you know, look, World War II is, you know, we're, we're talking about, my math is bad, but you got 55 years plus almost 25, we're almost 80 years on from the end of World War II. But there was a point in time, I think, where support for Israel was related to, I mean, even if, look, the government's always, all governments are cynical. They're not acting out of moral grounds. But I do think Back at the end of World War II, I am quite sure there were members of Congress and, you know, hey, maybe presidents who felt, at least in part, not that they would, you know, foreign policy would be made on the basis of morality, but felt like, oh, my God, we got to do something. I mean, maybe I'm dumb, but I do think certainly among the population at large, you know, there was a a, a, a a lot of sympathy for Jews, and that did contribute to, you know, the support for the founding of Israel. So, you know, at this point, I, it's I, I'm not sure it's a big factor, but I think, you know, there are various issues at play. But but it is true, whatever they are, the primary ones are U.S. national interest and the lobbying power of pro-Israel groups in 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 D.C. No question about it. Yeah, I was going to say with the lobbying aspect, I think that can get very um, messy at times because I think sometimes there are people that, you know, there are very right-wing people that will always talk about the lobby. And it's it's basically another way for far right-wingers to say, oh, Zog controls everything. And I obviously dislike that view. I think it's horrible. Yeah. It's anti-Semitic. At the same time, I, I think that APAC, uh, Zionist Organization of America, these different pro-Israel affinity groups that make up what we call the Israel lobby, to me, it's it's no different than I think there's a Turkish lobby as well. You know, I it's it's an issue of money rolling the roost more or than oh Israel. Yeah, go on. Yeah, or, I'm sorry. Yeah, the, or the pharmaceutical industry or the arms industry, which of course is also a factor in because you know they we sell a lot of weapons. The U.S. manufacturers sell a lot of weapons too. Israel. But yeah, absolutely. I, I I I don't really like the term the lobby because it is used by there are, of course, Jew haters who, you know, or even like there are the Christian right. You know, I don't not like even if I was pro-Israel, I would not welcome their support. But, you know, people have different reasons. But but to ignore the, the money issue. I mean, look, it's just stupid. You've got you know, th that's the way Washington works. I mean, it's a, you know, greasing the wheels by funding elected officials is a time-honored tradition. And, you know, we have 
joke campaign finance laws. So you can get away with pretty much anything. And it, I mean, to ignore it is just stupid. But yes, I agree with you. It makes, there are some people who I, I absolutely do think, uh, like some of the far right people, I don't think they like Jews at all. And, you know, so there are people who are maybe opponents or critics of Israel who I don't entirely trust, but under these circumstances now, it's, it's you know, just to smear everybody across the board as anti-Semitic is such bullshit. It's offensive. I'm curious, uh, what do you make of the U.S. response to all this? What do you make of the attacks on Tlaib and uh, just the the response we're seeing from the attacks on academia and uh, just what's happening in the U.S. right now? Well, that's what I was alluding to earlier. That. And I don't want to say in any way, like, I, I think I pulled back because I, I started it by saying, what's more shocking? I mean, nothing's more shocking than the images coming out of Gaza. Nothing could be more horrifying than that. But when I say more shocking, I mean, I'm not surprised so much by the overwhelming support in the political world and media world for Israel as I am by the extraordinary steps to crack down on anybody who opposes what Israel is doing. That's shocking to me. I mean, it's just flagrant attempts to criminalize speech. It's absolutely in violation of the First Amendment to, you know, what these, what's some of what's been passed and other stuff that's been proposed. So it doesn't surprise me because for years, you know, I've watched Israel literally get away with murder and continue to be patted on the back. But like, you know, telling. I mean, this is unlike anything we've seen before, though, the the level of I mean, the, there was October 7th and then there's what's happening now. Yeah. And I, I think if I mean, look at the numbers. I mean, we're, I, I'm seeing like 16,000 dead. I mean, it's I mean, I think we've lost track at this point. Of how many Gazans are dead? There, there, we've absolutely lost track, and any number is going to going to be an underestimate, and the numbers are going to keep growing. And then not only the the number of dead and wounded and displaced, but also the, the you know the cumulative total of bombs the you know dropped on this small area that those numbers are also just insane, extraordinary, mind boggling. So yeah, it's it's a situation that even in my worst nightmares about you know what israel could could get away with i i didn't i'm surprised at at, at some of this there's so few people criticizing what israel's doing it's it's embarrassing especially i mean it shows also that you know i mean i'm sorry but you know to call the u.s a democracy is such a a ridiculous i mean it's an oligopoly. It's an oligopoly, but you know any any serious group of political scientists who look at it know we're not a democracy. But if you need proof, you just look at the polls showing overwhelming skepticism to opposition to what Israel is doing, and no connection in Congress or the White House because they are they don't need the people to be elected. It's not necessary. I mean. 
they, you know, districts have been drawn in a way that, you know, if you're an incumbent, you're almost always going to get reelected because there are no rules on can't, you know, no serious limits on on money. Once you're in office, people want to buy your want to buy you. They've either bought you on the way in or they're going to seek to buy you now that you are in. It's very hard to lose office in this country. Like every, you know, every couple of years, what, 20 members of Congress lose their seats or in a big year, 50, because the shits really hit the fan. But they don't need to pander to, you know, public opinion. Why bother? You don't need public opinion. They don't care. They're completely disconnected. They live lives that are completely dissimilar to the way 90% of the country live. So there, there's just a we are not a democracy. It's a joke. It's a you know talk about offensive. Just the idea that we're a democracy at all, yet alone the world's greatest democracy. Give me a break. You know, like I guess every idiot intellectual who's ever you know in in every empire over history has been just as corrupt. But my God, it's embarrassing. It really is. I was gonna say with the Rashida Tlaib thing. I mean, what would I mean, that chafes me a lot because if people want to argue over whether from the river to the sea is a useful slogan, given its history, that's one thing. But I mean, it's it's very clear that Tlaib's views, and I've had mainstream Jewish columnists from places like the Jewish Telegraphic Agency say this to me. She basically believes in a binational state solution. Mm-hmm. And people can argue whether that is the right solution or not. But she is not calling for genocide, you know, and just seeing the attacks on her where people are calling her pro Hamas or she's connected to Hamas. I mean, this is like I mean, it's it really is ridiculous. I even I even see ostensibly pro Israel groups like J Street get called pro Hamas now by the most uh, fervent Israel supporters. And it's it. I mean, it's. I mean, even for me, it's kind of surprising and shocking yeah. how far people have gone with all this. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I knew I knew it would wouldn't have expected it, you know, a lot of principled opposition coming from Congress, but the absolute silence and endorsement is it's been discouraging to put it mildly. Is there anything else you want to say about the the Gaza situation right now before we I wanted to move on to two different topics, but uh, I want to put a bow on this aspect of the conversation because, I mean, it's it's on everyone's mind. And I mean, I think what we're seeing happening to the people in Gaza, that population is just I mean, it's horrific. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't even know what else to say other than that. Obviously, this is a time for all of us to find some courage and speak out about what's happening because you know i had a i had a relative actually i had posted something on facebook and a relative saw it and went after me because it was you know very critical of israel and first off i'm like what the fuck i mean it's my if you don't like if you don't like what i say just fine no problem but don't come attacking me on Facebook and expect that I'm not going to respond. I, I have I have various relatives who are very pro-Israel. I mean, I'm not going to start a conversation with them. It's it's a waste of time, you know, and and also I will respect uh, 
a family relationship in, in that way. I mean, if they bring it up, I will tell them what I think. I will not call them or go out of my way to shit on them because it's not going to change their mind and their family. And yeah, if we discuss it, I will be open. Anyway, this person attacked me and I went after him. And, you know, I said, in your name, not in my name. And that's the way I feel about it. Uh, uh. I'm not putting my name on this. This is something that anybody who's not speaking out. And, you know, hey, you know, if there are consequences, there are consequences. But I'm not going to shut up about it because I don't want this on my conscience. I mean, it's, you know, whatever happens, I want to be able to say, I said no from the get-go. We'll never, ever, like, I don't want to hear, like, ooh, there's, like, it's, you know, it's not black and white. The world's really never 100% black and white, but there are situations where it's more black and white than others. This is close enough to black and white that I'm not going to argue about the little details. I am opposed to this, and I'm going to say it at every opportunity and to anybody who wants to talk about it. But by the way, I thought it was interesting. I don't know if you saw that, um, you know, Israeli political figures like Itamar Ben-Giver and um, Bezalil Smotrich, who are, you know, part of uh, Netanyahu's coalition, and they represent the most far-right elements in Israeli political life, they've been saying something very interesting because they're going after the West Bank too. You know, mm -hmm. the West Bank yeah. isn't run by Hamas and people yeah. should realize that. But right. it's funny, they've been saying we need to denazify the West Bank. We need to denazify Gaza. And I thought it was interesting because the same people who called out Putin for talking about denazification of Ukraine, and you know, the, I understand like stuff like the Azov Battalion, people can get into that, but I, I feel like the rhetoric Putin was using was very over the top. It's weird to see that people who called Putin out for that are not doing that when it comes to these Israeli political figures. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it, it's tr absolutely true. I mean, they don't call them out on anything. I mean, it's, you know, just, I think it was yesterday or the day before there were these video images of Israelis using Palestinians as human shields. Like, Okay, you know, we really don't have that evidence that Hamas is doing that. I mean, we I, I haven't seen any video of that. That's clear. Like the they've been very it's not yesterday or the day before. It wasn't the only time. But well, it's it's so densely populated. So I think people forget. I mean, this is like a 25 mile stretch of, yeah. of land, you know, right. I mean, yeah, there probably is a Hamas member in one of yeah. these buildings. But even if there's one, they'll they'll bomb that building, you know, yeah. they'll bomb that church. I mean, it, I mean, everyone's a shield when it's that densely populated. Yeah, that, yeah. And that's a good point, too, is that even if Hamas was using human shields and I'm not saying they haven't. I just don't know. I haven't seen the clear evidence that we we do have clear evidence of Israel doing it. And nobody says, oh, they shouldn't be using human shields. But, yeah, I mean, if if Hamas is using human shields, that's not stopping the Israelis from killing the human shields along with the Hamas fighters. So give me a break. I mean, it's pathetic. I also wanted to ask you about the. Uh, the passing, the death, the yeah. going away into the great beyond of uh, Henry Kissinger, because you had a connection to uh, the infamous Boogergate photo, apparently. <laughs> 
I, I am proud of the fact, not only of my role in Boogergate, that I came up with the name Boogergate. Um, yeah, For Booger people Gate, that don't know, Boogergate refers yeah. to this famous photo of Kissinger. I'll put it in the episode description where he's like very clearly picking his nose and he seems to eat it. He's, he's like, it's two pictures. Yeah. <clears throat> he It's a before and after. And it's no question what he's doing. I lived in Brazil. I can't remember. I think it was like 19 i don't know it was back in the 1990s and kissinger was in brazil at some event and a photographer snapped these pictures of kissinger that were i go down to my newsstand when you know i guess there probably are still newsstands in rio where i used to live and pick up the journal de brazil my daily newspaper and there are these pictures and it was really funny because the caption uh, the captions were totally straight. It didn't say anything like Henry Kissinger is eating his own snot. It was just like Henry Kissinger at yesterday's meeting discussing whether Brazil would be able to enter a free trade agreement with the U.S. or something like that. It was a totally straight caption. <clears throat> and then when I started Counterpunch, which wasn't so terribly long after that, I was like, OK, there's got to be a way to run these, of course. And so I did. Ale I think Alex. Yeah, Alex had joined i don't remember i think alex had joined counterpunch by then alex coburn i don't remember but i'm pretty sure he had anyway i ran them and the washington post did a story in reliable source i don't even know if they have that anymore it used to be in the style section and it was funny because a few days later they clearly that it was i don't remember their names there was two women who did that column at the time and they clearly got shit from Catherine Graham, who was still alive, and or somebody at the Post, because the Post loves Henry, of course, loved. And they did some suck-up item in reliable sources, which is obviously like, oh, shit, we got to cover our asses. We shouldn't have done that. But then when I was applying for Counterpunch nonprofit status, I had to submit all the issues to the IRS unit that rules on uh, nonprofit. And and one of the only questions they asked was, how do these pictures of Henry? K I think there was somebody with a good sense of humor I, or they really a good, I think it was sort of a joke. Like, how do these pictures of Henry Kissinger like serve your nonprofit status? So I, I said something about free speech. I don't remember. But anyway, so those pictures after the, inter you know, the real dawn of the Internet age, I posted them periodically and they become pretty famous. Um, people know about them and they get thrown around. I posted them the night Kissinger died, which is what the day that I uh, coined the term Boogergate, I believe. Yeah. So that that was the Boogergate scandal. And, you know, just in short, there's, a, you know, not a lot to be said about Kissinger. I mean, I mean, there's a lot to be said about him, but there's not a lot that I think you or your listeners probably don't. I mean, the, you know, his history is very clear. He was a monster of a historic sort, a generational monster. And I mean, here again, you have a real disconnect between the media elite and the political elite. You know, there a lot of people have no tolerance, had no tolerance for Kissinger. I mean, he, you know, Anthony Bourdain, I, I mean, nobody could say it better than that. You know, he said, you know, if you once you hear about I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the precise quote, but once you I think it was like once you've gone to Cambodia, Cambodia. Yeah, it was Cambodia. You, you'd want to strangle him. Um, or something like that. And yeah, I mean, anybody familiar with his history who has a moral compass anyway would want to, you know, strangle the guy. So, I mean, look, you know, what 
it's always dumb. Like, oh, you can't say mean things about people at a delicate moment when, you know, just when they've died. It's like, give me a break. I mean, why? Like Hitler, did he look better the day he blew his brains out in the bunker? Not to make another Nazi reference. I mean, Kissinger's not going to age well. He, you know, he's not going to look any better in retrospect. I mean, so... Yeah, I took a lot of pleasure in mocking him on the date of his death and the days following it. Well, it's like people say, oh, well, he's criticized for Vietnam. It's not just Vietnam. It's East Timor. It's there is so much horror that was caused by Kissinger in part or in whole that, you know, I, I don't understand the veneration he gets. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Not only his role in foreign policy, but just as a human being. By the way, speaking of anti-Semitic and self-hating Jews, I mean, my God, he made some, you know, well, Nixon was complete Jew hater and Henry and he would talk about the Jews. I mean, there was that, the one, the quote that's the most outlandish is something like, you know, if I wasn't Jewish myself, I would be, you know, a huge anti-Semite or something like that. I mean... I have a very dark sense of humor and I can imagine saying things like that completely in jest, but with Kissinger, I'm sure he wasn't joking. I mean, he sat there. I know I would never sit around with Richard Nixon or anybody else and, and take part in the absolute Jew bashing, Jew hating conversations that Kissinger had with, with Nixon, you know, the, it, it, you know, at every level, political, personal, moral whatever he was a bad human being and i'm sorry good riddance i mean i'm glad he's dead can't put it any clearer than that it's funny people people will say oh well that comment he made about uh if he weren't a, a jew he'd probably be an anti-semite i mean people will say oh he was being ironic but you can't really say that about the other quote where he said uh you know if jews are being slaughtered in like the soviet union it wouldn't be a u.s problem you know, he's like, well, it doesn't matter if Jews get slaughtered somewhere. I mean, it's just, I mean, yeah. he's said things like that. It's on the record, you know. Yeah. And also, I mean, the Nixon tapes, I mean, the, you know, the conversations are very, very clear. I mean, you cannot sit around with, yeah, I'm sorry. Hey, it's the president. He's your boss. Well, maybe you don't want to work for that guy. I mean, there are people who feel like confronted with a situation like that would say, I can't be part of this. I mean, but to sit around and banter daily about, like, just to just have a conversation, the conversations they had with Nixon were, were just filled with Jew-hating stuff. I mean, you can't say that it was, you know, no. I mean, either he, you know, was too cowardly to speak up or he believed what he was saying. I think it's probably a combination of both, but unacceptable. I wanted to ask you about this because I... I when you brought up Alexander Coburn, the late Alexander Coburn, uh, it jogged my memory a bit. Do you know much about he was wasn't he targeted by the like APAC and these other groups or Yeah, I mean he uh you know, he was at the Village Voice, which is when I, you know, discovered him and you know, just was absolutely you know, he, as a writer. I I mean I didn't disagree with I, I didn't agree with Alex about everything. Well, but especially a, later in life, I know a lot especially of people later in life. Absolutely. But as a writer, you know, it was great. 
I mean, he he was a king when it came to mocking the political and media elite. Beat the so, Devil was such an amazing, right. you know, column at Village Voice. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was amazing. And that's I mean, he got driven out of the Village Voice because he had taken a, you know, he had received a grant from uh, the Institute of Arab Studies. Yeah. The Institute of Arab Studies to write a book or something. And I don't remember the circumstances. And maybe he should. I, I mean, I don't know if he didn't tell his editors about it which he if if that was the case i don't i don't want to say for sure because i don't remember but like he he probably should have disclosed that he should have disclosed that but nonetheless i mean alex wasn't being bought i mean it was pretty obvious his views on the middle east were pretty open he wasn't like altering his views because of the money he received and had he disclosed it to his editors or not which i just can't remember he still would have gotten like there would have been the same sort of reaction you see now from apac and israeli groups to, you know if they sense if they smell blood they will go after their enemies and they hated alex so he would have gotten oh well, i expect he whatever the circumstances taking the money alone would have been fatal because hey it's it's hard to stand up on principle people you know the voice caved um, and back then, the voice, you know, this was the 1980s. The voice was, you know, a pretty outspokenly liberal publication, but they they got rid of them. So how much have things changed? Because, I mean, I, I think people like Alex were targeted for their views on Israel, Palestine. Do you see it as worse now or worse then? Because I, I have seen people say to me that, they're actually heartened by the level of support uh, for Palestinian self-determination by just on the street level. You know what I mean? So have times changed at all in a way or? I think times have changed in some ways, but what you're, what you, the issue you've raised gets at the question of the disconnect between the political and media establishment and, you know, for lack of a better term, ordinary Americans, in, including me, I'm in that category of just you know, I'm, I'm not a media elite. So at the level of, yeah, I mean, it is heartening in, I guess, if anything is heartening at the moment that there, you know, amongst the public at large, there's, there's way more skepticism about Israel among young people. I think demographically, you know, the older you are, the more likely you are to be uh, strongly in Israel's corner. So, I mean, at that level, yeah. At the level of politics, no, no change, really. I mean, I don't, I, I can't say it may even be worse than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. And certainly it's still dangerous. It could be dangerous, absolutely dangerous to your career as a journalist to speak your mind about this if if your mind is on the side of the Palestinians and you're critical of Israel. So, yeah, I mean, at the level of the street, yeah, things are better at the, you know, the elite level now. I mean, it's it's not better and who knows, it could be worse. Two things here real quick because I know I've already kept you a few minutes over, but um you mentioned younger people being very supportive of Palestinians right now. Do you think I've said this to some other people and I've even had a guest or two on to talk about it. As bad as things are right now, I do think the Palestinian people are going to hold on. And I think that in the long term, 
in my view, and this is just my view, I think Israel has already lost the public relations war. Maybe not with older people, but younger people. And once those that older generation that has, I I would say, um, very specific ideas about Israel related to the 1967 war and the Cold War and what that meant during the Cold War, once those people are gone, uh, you know, once they've passed away, I, I, I don't think the younger generation is going to change on uh, the, the Israel-Palestine issue. I think that, you know, younger people uh, very much sympathize with the plight of Palestinians. And I feel like it's only a matter of time uh, before there is a, a sort of dramatic shift um, with regards to all of this, because that younger generation is not going away. No, I'm, <clears throat> I, I, I think that's true. I mean, you know, the memory of the Holocaust, the direct memory, and even more, because, I mean, it is sort of a, like, pro-Israeli people will cite figures, oh, a lot of, you know, I don't remember, 20% or something, uh, people polled, you know, don't really remember what happened to Jews during World War II. Um, so the direct memory and even, you know, I mean, it, it's it's fading and as time goes on and that you know that did at the street level that generated and still generates a lot of sympathy for jewish people um and hence in many cases that's transferred to israel but yeah i, I think that the numbers are going to only get worse particularly because israel's just you know a rogue state and with this war it's it's like for ordinary people it's very hard to justify at the same time what that doesn't necessarily mean because as i said earlier we're not a democracy so like public opinion doesn't matter a lot it makes it harder and over time it probably will erode the political support for israel but how much and how quickly remains to be seen but yeah i think over time and that's going to be potentially fatal to israel because i mean obviously it's you know they're creating a lot more enemies than they are killing and that's going to well, get eventually too, not to interrupt you, but eventually, eventually this will become a problem for the U.S. You know, I think that's why we saw the resignation of Josh Paul at the State Department, because even from a U.S. interests viewpoint, if you're trying to build relations with the global south, especially as we seem to be in a new Cold War with China, those relations are not going to be possible if you're really, you know, just full on pro-Israel about everything, because a lot of, you know, the global South and many other countries just are not on board with this, like, unwavering support for Israel at all turns. I Definitely. And if the um, and that is one of the issues that could end up trumping the the APAC cash, you know, the, the power of the pro-Israel lobby, because at heart, foreign policy and political opinion and political behavior is, of course, driven by geopolitical considerations. And if Israel becomes a liability, even if for people who are receiving lots of APAC money, if it becomes a political liability, some of that support will peel away from the political world. But it's just, you know, I, unfortunately, I don't, I think it's, it's the shift against Israel, which needs to happen 
given its conduct, will advance much more quickly at the street level than at the, you know, political level. Last thing, you had a piece in the New Republic about uh, Menendez. Do you just want to preview that for my listeners? We can't get too deep into it, but maybe you could just uh, give the overview. No, I mean, Bob, Senator Bob Menendez, I'm sure many of your listeners will know him as Senator Goldbar. He was recently indicted on corruption charges for the second time. Previously, he was alleged to have taken bribes from a crooked doctor in Florida who he did a lot of favors for. And he got off. It was a hung jury. The prosecutors chose not to re-prosecute. This time, it's, it's I think, a little bit more perilous for him, but who knows? He's allegedly received, you know, cash, gold bars, a Mercedes. Uh, uh, you know, his, his, his wife got a no-show, basically no-show or low-show job from assets of the Egyptian government. So he's awaiting trial. So I've written about him a few times in the past. And, you know, I... It's like three years ago, there was a New York Post story that he said uh, about him spending $300,000 at Morton's Steakhouse out of his political money. So I started looking into that because that was a really good story. I saw it and I thought, boy, that's that's smart story. And with Menendez in the news, I just started going through his campaign records. You know, and I found he was up to the Post story was like in 2021. He's now up to 374000 at Morton's alone, a ton more at other steakhouses, restaurants. I mean, long story short, you towed up the transfer, the, the 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 travel, the lodging, often at luxury hotels and resorts, beachfront resorts, and th- three beachfront resorts in Puerto Rico, Beverly Hills. You add up the 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 food, the beverage, the catering for fundraisers, and a lot of his catering is clearly like you know when you're when you list something as a catering charge for two hundred bucks. That's not that's you and a buddy who's maybe a donor having a meal. You know, it's not catering in the sense that we think of catering. But anyway, you add it all up. It's four point three million over the last 20 years, 200 grand a year. That's more than his Senate salary. It's tax free. You're not you're not reimbursing. You know, you're not it's not out out of pocket income. It's straight out of your campaign funds and political funds. So you're you know, you're not taxed on that 200 grand a year. That's a lot. I mean, obviously, you know, I went into the wrong profession and, uh, you know, I just looked, the numbers are staggering. So I wrote this piece for New Republic. It's out now. It's online. It's available now. And um, looked at that and, you know, I mean, noted that this is more than he he receives as a senator for his Senate pay. You you add up what he spent over the years. It's a lot more than the bribes, the known, the, the bribes that he allegedly took in from the doctor and the Egyptians there. I mean, we, there may have been more by bribes, alleged bribes, I should say, but the ones that have been reported, if you, you you know, you combine the ones from the doctor and the Egyptians, then they don't come close to what he has been pilfering. Well, not because the campaign finance rules are such a joke. He probably, he probably did not violate campaign finance law. Anyway, so yeah, the piece just looks at what he's done. I, you know, I opened the piece be, uh, w- with me being at Morton's a couple of weeks ago. On a two two weeks ago from yesterday, I'm writing this piece and I'm like I'm like okay, I gotta I'm busy. I'm always busy. I have a lot to do, but I'm like okay, I gotta make at least one. I was gonna make a couple of 
runs to Morton's downtown in DC, where he spent almost all the Morton's money was at that Morton's. So I thought, okay, maybe I can make two runs before turning his story in. He's not going to be there, but what the hell? He's there a lot. He's known to hold court there, but let me give it a go. Let, you know, on November 29th, I leave my house uh, and I'm like, why am I doing this? This is a waste. He's not going to be there. I thought I'll talk to, maybe I'll get something from bartenders or waiters or whatever. I go down there, go out to the, he loves to smoke cigars. I go out to the covered patio where smoking is allowed, open the door. And I'm like, okay, am I hallucinating? Because that looks like him right, like at a door, at a table right inside the door. It's him. It. You know, I'm not hallucinating. It turns out <clears throat> it's him with a buddy. They're drinking. I think it was brandy. It was based on the color of the liquid and it's served in a snifter. I mean, it could have been something else, but probably brandy or cognac and um, smoking cigars. So I sit down at a table next to him, do a little eavesdropping, you know, didn't really pick up much. It was sort of a slow night, but still a bunch of noise. And so I didn't pick, I heard them talking, I heard Israel, Hamas come up, I heard immigration come up, I don't know what else they were talking about. But interestingly, at the, you know, when they were getting ready to go an hour after I got there, and it looked like they'd been there for a while, I don't know, but, you know, there were tables, there were, you know, snifters on the table, big bottle of water that was empty, mineral water, you know. He was just living it up. Living it up. So, you know, I'm getting ready to leave, and of course... Senator Bob Goldbar Menendez asks for the check and lays down the card and picks it up. I mean, tech, I, I can't say for sure he was paying out of campaign funds, but I would bet anything. I mean, the guy, like $374,000, he was not picking up that tab. And uh, I guess we won't know until the next FEC records come out, which it will be next year for this quarter, or actually semi-annual, to be precise. And, you know, so he picks up the tab and he and the waiter obviously know each other well. And it's like, I think it was the waiter. I don't have the story in front of me. And I remember I, in my draft, I wrote that one of them said, see you next time. I think I wrote that it was uh, Menendez who said that. And then I checked my notes and I realized it was the other way around. But one or the other said, see you next time. It was clear that the guys, you know, I knew he was there a lot, but just the one night I went, there he is right there. The minute I opened the door. <clears throat> so it was, that's the lead to the piece. But yeah, there's a lot. I think people will enjoy that story. So this is why I love that, that, that term you coined. Um, and you have that book with, with Coburn, uh, Washington Babylon, and then you had the publication Washington Babylon, but it really is. I mean, what you're covering you're basically doing what Kenneth Anger did with Hollywood Babylon, you know, like that was where the book that was where I will say that uh, Alex, I, I believe Alex must get the credit for the term, because I think the first time I remember hearing it was when we were looking for a book title for Washington Babylon, for what became Washington Babylon. And he was um, he loved Kenneth Anger. And I think. I'm not sure. I may have heard about Hollywood Babylon from him. I don't remember, but I love the book. So I, I believe Alex probably gets credit for that one. I'd have to say that's 90% likely. And then I've used it for my own website and I used it as a column at Harper's Magazine when I was there for my, for my blog, back then a blog. So I, I love the term and yeah, it's perfect. It is 
that's what it's about. That's it's we are living in a Washington Babylon world. Well, it's 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 I mean, the thing with with that title is just that people think, oh, yeah, beyond the glitz and the glamour of Hollywood, there is this Hollywood Babylon. It's real scuzzy. But we do that less with D.C. for some reason, you know, especially journalists, you know, but it really is a scuzzy world of money and people trying to get what they can uh, out of the taxpayer dime. So it's a perfect title. Absolutely. Couldn't, that's why I just keep using it. Well, hey, thanks, Ken, for coming on Parallaxes. How can my listeners keep up with you? Are you on uh, Twitter or Blue Sky or anything like that? I'm on. I'm only on Twitter at this point. I mean, have a deep, profound loathing for Elon Musk at this point. I I, I didn't previously oh, until a few years ago after he got by Twitter. I I mean, he didn't strike me. I mean, it's not like it, it was friendly, but I, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't know that much about him. He didn't seem, he seemed eccentric and quirky uh, and not quite a convention, which is true, I think. But but he turns, I mean, politically, he turns out to be sort of a flat out far right guy who's, I mean, he's from South Africa, I know, but I don't know. I just didn't know much about him anyway. And now he's getting embraced by Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL. Oh my God. Which is really pathetic. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, I don't know. It just, I do, I, I guess I don't, I've been reluctant about going to some of the others because I, I don't mind arguing with people or hearing other, I like to hear other people's opinions, even if I don't agree with them on most issues and it's just too much work. I got enough to do. So I'm, for now I'm going to stick to Twitter. Wouldn't go premium. I don't want to give Musk a penny and who knows maybe, it, but Ken Silverstein wanted Twitter. I'm barely on Facebook these days. You can find me there um, and, you know, look for my stories. Did, did uh by the way did the Greenblatt thing uh surprise you or or having covered like the SPLC skullduggery were you unsurprised by it? Not really. Not. I mean, I'm yeah. Not. I mean, a little bit. It Greenblatt, no, I guess because he is just appalling. But hey, the pro-Israel crowd will embrace anybody. They need the support, so it doesn't totally surprise me. It's cynical as hell, but hey. Are we surprised by the cynicism of the pro-Israel lobby at this point? Not really. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ken Silverstein. And as always, if you can, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is you, the listener, who makes this show possible. Outside of one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window, you are what makes this show possible. So head on over to Patreon and kick me over some finances to keep this show afloat. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, 
uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.